Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. Okay, good morning, everybody. We're going to get started with the fire of the Holy Spirit here. Get some warmth going with the word of God, hopefully. So like I said, we're gonna finish Zechariah chapter nine this morning. And it's amazing, amazing set of passages all about God's deliverance for his people. And uh, like we always should whenever we're opening up God's word, let's open up in prayer and just have the Holy Spirit teach us everything out of his word this morning because he is, he is the teacher. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the teacher. And by his anointing from 1 John 2.27 that, that dwells inside of you, we can learn everything out of God's word. And it's just incredible when you lean on him to let him teach it to you and you don't seek others it's amazing who he brings in your paths to help you out along the way. So Lord, we come before you. We just thank you so much for this time together. God, I do thank you for Zechariah 9. Lord, I pray that you would teach us everything out of your word this morning. We thank you, dear Lord, for this time together. We thank you that we live in a place where we can gather and study the word of God without the threat of persecution or imprisonment or danger to our families, God, it is a privilege that is not enjoyed in most of the body of Christ in most of the world. And we do not take it lightly, Lord, that in these last days, you have preserved this place to be a light to the entire world, to study your word, to go out and to edify and equip your people. And God, I thank you that you are moving in a mighty way in these last days. And I pray that, Lord, this last and final harvest would be to your glory. And God, let more people come into the church age right now before it is too late, before you call us home with a shout that is gonna shake the earth. And God, I thank you so much for this time together and that, Lord, by studying prophecy from Revelation 19, it is the testimony of Jesus. The spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. And so, Lord, may we see you on every page this morning, Jesus. In your precious name we pray, amen. 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 Well, I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving and uh, we had a great time with family. It's always a, a wonderful time to gather together and actually reflect on being grateful and thankful for what the Lord's done in your life and in your family's lives. And you know, no matter how bleak your circumstances are, if you have breath in your lungs and your heart is beating and you have the Bible, uh, you have much to be thankful for and because you still have an opportunity to serve the Lord and to do something radical for his kingdom. And what you do in the spirit will echo for all eternity. Just remember that. You will, you will forever have something on the, on the other side of this that will remain for all eternity. And like I mentioned before we started here, 1 John 2, 27 and 28, it's actually how, you know, this verse was 
just beat into my head by my father-in-law when I was in high school. And this verse is what I clung to 12 years ago when I started reading the Bible cover to cover for the first time and going through it on my own, writing down every single question I had for God because no question's too big for him and he wants to teach you. But the anointing which you have received of him abideth in you and ye need not that any man teach you but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things and is truth and is no lie. And even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And now little children abide in him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. See, when you abide in the word of God, you have confidence no matter what your circumstances are. No matter what someone says to you, no matter how badly you're ridiculed, no matter, no matter what God asks you to do, you know, you have confidence and you can be not ashamed at his coming. I think that's incredible. And I promise you, if you will give the Holy Spirit space to teach you and write down every single question you have out of the Bible, he will teach you everything. He is so faithful as the author and finisher of our faith to sit with you and to show you the depth of his word. And the first time I went through the Bible, it took me 18 months, but... Uh, don't be in a rush. Just sit with God and sit with him and let him teach it to you and then go do it again and again and again. And you will find your questions will change. You'll grow in such a way that you will have absolutely radical faith because you will have an overflowing of the Holy Spirit brimming out of you. Now, as we're studying Zechariah here, remember this is our Old Testament timeline of when the Holy Spirit wrote each of these books kind of along from creation all the way until the exile of Israel, or the post-exile, I should say. Uh, Zechariah was a post-exile prophet. Remember, he was one of the, the prophets God raised up after the Babylonian captivity. So they went into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. They did not obey God at his word. He, he told them to till the land six years and let it rest the seventh. And they didn't do that for 490 years. And so in God's eyes, they owed him 70 years. And that's what he says twice in the Bible as to why they're going into captivity. So they go in for 70 years. They're released by Cyrus of Persia. He conquers Babylon. They go back to rebuild the temple and they don't get very far because they're spiritually immature. And God raises up Haggai to encourage them to press on and finish the temple. They don't really listen. And so then God raises up Zechariah to try to correct the spiritual immaturity in the people and to encourage them to get into the word of God, to listen to God and to build their faith and go finish what he started. And so Zechariah has an amazing, an amazing call by God. It's probably the most messianic book in the entire Old Testament. You know, it introduces Jesus as the branch in Zechariah 3.8. And the whole book is about our Messiah, the entire book from cover to cover. The Lord speaks of, of Jesus as the stone with seven eyes, which is a link to Revelation. His throne and Jesus being crowned on it. He speaks of Jesus, the Nazarene, the king riding on a donkey, which is what we studied last week in Zechariah 9.9, which was prophesied in advance in Daniel 9 to the day when Jesus would ride in on that donkey. Remember from the going forth of the commandment to rebuild the wall in Nehemiah chapter two until Jesus rode in on the donkey in Luke. It would be 173,880 days to the day. And God nailed it, of course, to the day. And Jesus rode in. 
But Zechariah 9.9 was, how would you recognize your king? And it was, he would ride in on a donkey. And that's, we studied that last time. Zechariah talks of the shepherd, his betrayal for 30 pieces of silver, and then actually what the people that betrayed him do with the money, which is pretty incredible. Zechariah 12 talks about Jesus being pierced or crucified, which crucifixion wasn't even invented yet. It's incredible, but the Jews are going to look upon him whom they have pierced when he returns a second time. His return in power in Zechariah 14 and destroying his enemies with nothing more than the word of his mouth. Because like we mentioned at the beginning, his word is what holds every single atom together in the universe. We know that from quantum physics. And there comes a time when he returns in Zechariah 14 that he simply lets go of some people and they just dissolve. And that's all in Zechariah 14, the ones that surround Jerusalem at Armageddon, which really isn't a battle at all. It's a staging ground. It's a staging ground where they think the kings of the earth are going to set themselves against the rulers and against the anointed one, our Messiah. And he returns because Israel petitions him to from Hosea 5.15. And he instantly comes back. We are with him. And he just wipes out all of the enemies surrounding Jerusalem and sets up the kingdom. Okay, we're on this outline. Remember, the first couple of chapters, one through six, were all about those 10 visions that God gave Zechariah in one night. In one night, he gives him 10 visions. And then there's an interlude in chapter seven and eight where God shifts the focus and tells, tells the Jews, hey, you're, you're, you're fasting and mourning will be turned to feasts and joys. And so you have two chapters of God telling them, stop fasting, stop mourning. It's time to get right and joyful in the Lord and go finish the temple. Well, then the final, the final five chapters of the book, or six chapters, um, 9 through 14, are going to be about the first arrival in Christ, of Christ in 9 through 11, and the second arrival of Christ in 12 and 14, 12 through 14. Okay, so we've studied... We're going to finish chapter 9 today, but prophetically it outlines the first advent of Christ. The second advent of Christ starts in chapter 12, and it will be a time, obviously, when Israel's fasts are turned into feasts finally and forever. They will no more be persecuted as the Jews. Now, see, the Jews know that a kingdom will be established, and this is in Acts 1, 6, and 7. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. See, notice that Jesus didn't say it won't happen. He said it's not for you to know the times nor the seasons. Now, it's quite the opposite for us as the church. Remember, all through the Bible, Jesus tells us as the church, we should know the times and the seasons of when we're going to go home. Because if we recognize the times and the seasons, what did Jesus say in Revelation? That day will not overtake you as a thief in the night. You won't be surprised. When the rapture happens from 1 Thessalonians 4, you will not be shocked if you are watching for it. Because you know that the end is nigh and that the whole beast system that's gonna be set up to a a place that a one man, a one one world ruler, can come in and take it over, you won't be shocked. And that's what's been set up since 2020. They're trying to set up that system. See, ever since the beginning, Satan tried to push in the one world system by having a leader ready. 
That's what you saw with Hitler, for example, in World War II. He had a leader, but the world rejected the leader because of his persecution. Now, if you have a system, see, Satan's getting a little more clever. If you have a system put in place that's ready for one man to step into or an entity, so to speak, to step into, then you have something that the world has already bowed down to. And so he's changed his tactics some, which is pretty incredible. But notice that Jesus didn't dispute that. He didn't dispute that with the Jews, that they would not have the kingdom. So remember, the first eight verses of chapter nine, they dealt with part of the military campaign of Alexander the Great and God's protection of Jerusalem in verse eight specifically. We looked at that last week. Verses nine and 10 prophesied Jesus' first time to present himself as king by riding into Jerusalem on the donkey. Chapter nine now closes with God's promise to deliver his people. And so despite all of Israel's rebellion, God keeps his word and his promises are yes and amen. And that's exactly what we sung about this morning in the first song in worship. And that's from 2 Corinthians 1 chapter 20, or verse 20, I should say. For all the promises of God in him are yea and in him amen unto the glory of God by us. You know, you and I serve a God and a king that delights in keeping his word. And we serve a king that he's not capricious. In other words, he can't do whatever he wants. Uh, what he wants is in his word, and he sticks to it. The Muslims and other, a lot of other religions around the world, the God they serve can change his or her mind at any single time. Uh, the the Islam's, Islamic religion, Allah, he's capricious. He can change his mind whenever he wants, and those people know that. And so they can't trust anything that he has written down. You and I have the benefit of a God that does not stray from his word. That's why it's so powerful when you study his word. His word is a covenant, it's a contract. And if you can study that contract and find how to live, how to grow in him, how to serve him, your call, it will be in there. You know, your name is encrypted in there, in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. It's in there. Every single person that's ever lived, their name is in that, in that book, in the word of God. Maybe encrypted, you can't find it, but it's in there, I promise you. Because his promises are yes and amen. And his promise is that if you reject him, he has to blot you out of his book. See, in Hebrews 2.9, Jesus tasted death for every man, every man. And you can find this in Psalms 139 and a few other places in the Bible, but when you reject the Messiah and the price he paid for your salvation, he has no choice but to blot you out of his book, which means your name must be written there. And so when you get saved, he traces over your name, though, by the blood of Jesus, never to be taken away. And when you reject him, he has no choice but to say, okay, I can't have fellowship with you. And hell was created for Satan and his angels, not for you. Uh, hell was not a place that God created for humanity. It was a place that he created for Satan and his angels, and you're not supposed to be there. According to Psalms 139, uh, before any member of your body was formed in your mother's womb, your name was written in the book, when as yet your members were none of them. And he has a destiny, a place for you. It's in heaven by him. So in Zechariah 9.11, to open up here, as for thee also, by the blood of thy covenant, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water. 
So God starts out by reinforcing the blood of their covenant. Now, this could be a reference back to the Abrahamic covenant. We talked about that a little bit last week. But you can find that in Genesis 15, 9 through 12. And remember, the important thing out of that is that God put Abram in a deep sleep and God alone went around the animals and, and, and recited the covenant. Abraham had nothing to do with it. And so remember, God's promises are yes and amen. And how much did Abraham do with the promise that Israel would have all of the land from the river Nile in Egypt to the river Euphrates in Iraq? They had very little. They had nothing to do with it. God's promised that land to them, which is why the entire world is against Israel to this day. And you're seeing that from Gaza and the war that's been breaking out over the last month or so. Really, it's about two months now. And, but his promises are yes and amen, and he will not repent of that. He recites the covenant in Genesis 15. He's promised the land to his people, and they will occupy it from Egypt all the way to Iraq. And right now, remember, the part of the land they're occupying is less than one-tenth the size of the state of Oklahoma. And yet the entire world is against them. The entire world wants them off that land. Why? Why do they care about a land that is so small and a people group that was scattered for almost 2,000 years that God regathered? He promised they would speak their original language, and they do. He promised that they would be regathered the second time and never be moved again from Isaiah 11, and they won't be. But the entire world is against those promises of God's people. And it's really sad that the church doesn't recognize God's place for Israel in the end times because when you miss that, you miss what God has for you out of the word of God. The, if you look at the Bible from Acts 2 to Revelation 3, only that section is about the church. And if you had a, a hard copy of your Bible and you picked it up and you held up those pages, you would see how little is written about the church in the Bible. The rest of the Bible is about Israel and God's plan for Israel and us being grafted into the covenant because they rejected their Messiah. And so because of that, you and I are co-heirs with Christ, which is incredible. We get to be co-heirs with Christ to rule and reign with him because they rejected him. Remember they told, he told them, hey, if you would have accepted me when I showed up the first time, this wouldn't have been John the Baptist. I would have sent Elijah the second time and we'd be ushering in the kingdom because he promised them in Malachi that he would send Elijah the second time. Okay, the Mosaic covenant, look at Exodus 24, verse eight. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. Now, God references this in Hebrews 9, 18 through 20, whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law. He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool, hyssop, and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. And remember the whole book of Hebrews is about the better testament that the blood of Christ speaks and how he is our high priest and how we have the, the opportunity to go to him for anything that we need he will, be, he will meet that need. Okay, now, so the blood of the covenant could be a reference to the Abrahamic covenant, could be a reference to the Mosaic covenant, 
But look at the second part of this. I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water. Now, I think this is interesting because both Joseph and Jeremiah were thrown into a pit where there was no water. In Genesis 37, verse 24, they took him and cast him into a pit, that's Joseph, and the pit was empty, there was no water in it. Now, I think that's pretty fascinating. Look at Jeremiah 38, verse six. Then took they Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon. (laughs) Remember Jeremiah, what a call this guy had. The Lord said, hey, go and tell my people this, but hey, they're not gonna listen to you, and they're gonna throw you in a dungeon, and they're gonna hate you, and they're gonna take you prisoner and captive, and you'll be ridiculed, but you have to go tell them this. And he had a call that most people do not want on, on their lives. But there was in the court of the prison, they let down Jeremiah with cords. Remember, they, they lowered him into the dungeon with those cords. And in the dungeon, there was no water but mire. So Jeremiah sunk in the mire. He was in a muddy dungeon with no water, sinking in the mud. That was his call. That's a, that's a steep call. Okay, so verse 12 here in Zechariah 9. Turn you to the stronghold, ye prisoners of hope. Even today do I declare that I will render double unto thee. Now, he's speaking to Israel. He will render double unto them. This is a phrase for the firstborn. The firstborn of the family was to receive a double portion of inheritance. Unless they forfeited it in rebellion or for forsaking their position. And you can find this in Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17. If a man have two wives, one beloved and another hated, and they have borne him children, both the beloved and the hated, and if the firstborn son be hers that was hated, then it shall be when he maketh his sons to inherit that which he hath, that he may not make the son of the beloved firstborn before the son of the hated, which is indeed the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the son of the hated for the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he hath, for he is the beginning of his strength, the right of the firstborn is his. Now, the firstborn, you can find this all through the Bible, if you look up the firstborn, and how many times the firstborn would go in rebellion and forsake their inheritance, and God would give it to the next in line. And you see that with uh, Isaac, with Jacob and Esau, Remember, Esau was the firstborn, but he hated his birthright. He forsook it. He looked at his inheritance from God as being as worth as much as a little bowl of porridge that Jacob was making. And so he sold out his future for something temporary. That's the story. And you and I as a Christian in this world, we run the same risk of selling out our inheritance for something temporary. Because God has a plan for you and I, and he has an inheritance for you and I that is so great you cannot even imagine on the other side of this. It's something that's eternal. You know, it's not something that's just a bowl of oatmeal for the morning. It's something that's eternal. He has it stored up for you, and the more you serve him, the more you learn about it, and the more you have a sense of urgency to press on and to not lose that to run the race. Remember Paul was, he was obsessed with not being a castaway. He was obsessed with not losing his inheritance. He was obsessed with running the race and finishing well. That's the key. And you can find this modeled between David and Solomon. 
And David is a man that was after God's own heart. There was nothing bad said about him at all, nothing. And yet here's a guy that committed adultery, murder. Uh, his baby was, the Lord took his baby from adultery. Remember, he, he took him home. But yet nothing bad was ever said about David. In fact, he's promised to rule over Israel in the millennium. Solomon, on the other hand, here's a guy that did everything God told him not to do. He was not to multiply wives, horses, or gold. And he did all three. He had hundreds and hundreds of wives. I mean, I can't imagine. Uh, I cannot imagine. But nothing wrong with wives. I love mine. Uh, but God intended you to have one. And there's a reason. Because you have to build a relationship for eternity with that one. And so... But here's a guy that did everything wrong. In the New Testament, Jesus has nothing good to say about him. You know, for as much as all the glory of Solomon was arrayed in, these daisies in the field have more than he. Remember Jesus talked about that? So the key, though, to that, to being a person after God's own heart, it doesn't mean you're going to be sinless your whole life. That's impossible, what it means is that you have a heart of running toward perfection no matter what you do. And that's what David did. Every time he messed up, he ran to God. He went to God's feet. He sought forgiveness. He sought repentance. He sought to be cleansed. And so you've got to keep that in mind. And that's the problem with Esau. He hated his birthright. He didn't want to go to God and seek repentance. And so as a result... No place was found for him. Remember when Isaac is dying and Isaac tells him that? Israel was to be God's firstborn. You see this in Exodus 4, verse 22. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. See, that's a title. That is a title of positional authority. And they forsook it. They did not want to, to abide in God they're delivered out of the greatest source of miracles in Egypt in the Exodus event the, the earth has ever seen yet. The earth will see greater during the tribulation. But they're delivered out of it by the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. They're gone, they go through the Red Sea on dry ground where the Lord gives them dolphin skins for shoes that grow with them for 40 years in the wilderness. And yet after 48 hours, they're, they're forging a golden calf saying, well, this is what delivered us out of Egypt. And as a result, they forsook their inheritance. They never went into the promised land. And God raised up the next generation to take their place. You know, Jesus is referred to as the firstborn in Colossians 1. Now, if you want to study a, a chapter that's all about physics, study Colossians 1. And me as an engineer, I love Colossians 1. It's incredible. It has more to do about math and science and physics than, than most of the modern textbooks where our children are taught that we evolved somehow from a monkey. You know, and yet you can ask them, well, where's the in-between guy that's in the process of evolving? And they can't point to him. So anyway, Colossians 1 verse 13, who at, starting in verse 13, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. 
Now that term, what God is saying of Jesus, he is the firstborn of every creature, meaning he is the source of, of positional authority over every creature. It doesn't mean he was born. Jesus was not born. He always has been and always will be. Yes, he took on flesh, and we're gonna celebrate that coming up at Christmas and became human for us. But he, that wasn't when he first showed up. He was there from the beginning, and he, uh, he always has been. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. You know, there is more that you can't see that God created than you can. Uh, there is more on the other side of this. You cannot even imagine when we get to the 10 dimensions, and you and I enjoy four or three and a half right now, really. But, you know, right now you're enjoying three and a half dimensions. Wait until you get to 10. And the New Jerusalem stretches for 1,500 miles high in the, in the air. And you're going vertical, and their streets are filled with people celebrating Jesus. You will not believe it. Invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions. Now, these are ranks of angels. Or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Now, that's, that's the word right there in the Greek that means held together. And by him, all things are held together. So I've referenced that a couple times. That's from quantum physics that by him, by his voice, all atoms are held together by sound waves. And quantum physics, they've tried to find why these like-charged molecules don't rip apart. These protons and electrons that are going around this nucleus. There's all this space in between them. And what in the world is holding it together? Scientists have been looking for, and they've called it gluons for 100 years or so. They, they don't know what it is. Until recently, about five years ago, they discovered that it's sound waves. And those sound waves literally are the voice of God. That's what they have discovered, is the voice of God that does not go away. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. You know, and this year at Christmas, I'll, I'll just challenge all of you. The Lord told me something very specific to do this year at Christmas. Um, he told me to give him our family. And not that he doesn't have his place as head and authority in our family, but it was almost like a rededication, so to speak. Like a, be intentional this year about giving him all of you and all of you, your children, your, your marriage, your spouse. Um, if you're a husband in here, you have spiritual authority over your family. And God wants to take that place alongside where you are rightfully leading your family according to his word. And when you do that and you take your rightful place, your family will grow exponentially more than you could ever imagine in love, in joy, in contentment, in stretching themselves to live more for the Lord. Um, when you don't do that, husbands in here, fathers, when you don't do that, your wife will try to fill that gap and will do it unsuccessfully because they are, they are great women of God, but they don't have the anointing to lead the family in that way. And you as a man have to step up and shed whatever is chaining you in bondage or sin. If there's something in your life that you haven't gotten rid of, you have to do that so you can rightfully take your place as head of your household 
and let God lead you. Okay, in verse 13 here, when I have bent Judah for me, filled the bow with Ephraim and raised up thy sons, O Zion, against thy sons, O Greece, and made thee as the sword of a mighty man. Now, notice here God has Judah and Ephraim, which means all of Israel. We've talked about this several times, but there are no lost tribes. That's a fallacy uh, taught um, in a lot of churches that God has somehow lost 10 tribes of Israel, and he hasn't. They're all there, and even in the New Testament, you'll find several spots the Holy Spirit writes to all 12 tribes. Now, remember, there's actually 14. Uh, God says 12 to mean all of them because Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, that are adopted by Jacob, and so God has 14 names to choose from. But in any case, they're all there. All 12 are there. Now, in Hebrew, in the Hebrew, what God is saying here is that Israel's sons will be stirred. Now, the Lord is likely prophesying about the war of the Maccabees. And what this lasted for 13 years, from 175 B.C. to 163 B.C. So he's looking, remember, Zechariah is a couple hundred years before this. God's looking into the future. Uh, This was a Jewish rebellion. If you don't know anything about the Maccabean Revolt, it's a Jewish rebellion against the Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, we studied Alexander the Great last time because he's prophesied in Zechariah earlier. Remember when he died, his kingdom was divided up to four generals. They fought for hundreds of years over the kingdom. It was all prophesied in Daniel 11. And then the uh, the Roman Empire took over the world and ruled the earth in in Jesus' day. Now, in between Alexander the Great dying and Rome ruling the earth while those generals are fighting, there's an empire known as the Seleucid Empire that tries to take over. And Antiochus Epiphanes, he hated God, hated him. He hated all the Jewish Jewish religious practices. Uh, He hated the Old Testament He hated everything. So what he did was he demanded the slaughtering of pigs and swine on the altars throughout all Judea. Now, if you know about Jewish customs, that is an abomination to God. And he did not allow circumcision of the Jewish boys. Everything they did, he tried to stop. And so he was a type or a foreshadowing of the Antichrist. Now, Antiochus... He placed an idol in the Holy of Holies in the temple and desecrated the temple. And the Hebrew men were so outraged at what the abomination and the blasphemy of Almighty God that they finally began revolting. It was like guerrilla warfare. And it started with one man. You know, I love throughout the Bible how God has these moves that always start with one man. And his name was Judas Maccabeus and his family rebelling and seeking independence from the tyrants. Now notice his family was involved. His sons joined him. That's a man that led his family the right way. (laughs) That's a man whose sons knew what was at stake and joined their father in the fight. And he, he rose up. Now once other families started joining them, it took the rebels about three years to take back Judea. And in the process, they rededicated the temple and cleansed it and rededicated, and it's what the Jews celebrate today in Hanukkah. That's what they do to celebrate Hanukkah. Hanukkah has nothing to do with the birth of Jesus. It just happens to be about this time of year. 
Now, it's mentioned by the Holy Spirit in John, John chapter 10, verse 22. And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. Now, if you go back and study throughout the Bible, they never dedicated the temple in winter. That only happened in the Maccabean revolt at Hanukkah. Hanukkah is what John 10.22 is referencing, the feast of dedication, and it was winter. Now, the next set of verses here, 13 through 17 to finish the chapter, they seem to all refer to these conflicts of the Maccabeans against the Seleucids. And they also, though, look toward the millennium. Now, Daniel makes several references to this age as well. In Daniel 11, verse 32, and such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries, but the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. He's talking about those Maccabeans and the people that, that were raised up and rebelled against Antiochus. Now, if you go back to Daniel 8, verses 9 through 14, there's a prophecy that both relates to Antiochus Epiphanes and the Antichrist. It's the little horn. Daniel talks about that. But if you look at Daniel 8, 14, and he said unto me, unto the 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And God's talking about that cleansing of the temple. If you do the math, 2,300 days, it's about 6.389 years on God's calendar. Okay, so you can, you can find that out. It's uh, 360 days per year is always God's calendar. Remember, we talked about that last week. In verse 14 here, and the Lord shall be seen over them and his arrow shall go forth as the lightning and the Lord God shall blow the trumpet and shall go with whirlwinds of the south. Now, blowing the shofar, the trumpet, if you look that up in Hebrew throughout the Bible, if it's shofar, it's talking about a curved ram's horn that was used as an instrument of alarm and a war cry. And you can find that in Exodus 19, verse 16. And it came into pass on the third day in the morning that there was thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. Can you imagine when God came down on Mount Sinai in fire and lightning and hailstones and blackness and darkness and he spoke to all the people from the mount and he wanted to speak to them directly and and then all of them are sitting there terrified because I bet that shofar, I bet that trumpet wasn't just a do-do-do-do. It was, it's, it was loud. I bet it shook the earth. I bet their tents were rattling. Tent poles were probably falling over. I bet those people were freaking out at what that, that sound was. You know, and remember, it's after that point, they all go to Moses and say, man, you cannot let that ever happen again. You have to go talk to God directly and then come tell us what he says. And from that point on, it's total failure because they don't want to hear from God directly. They want to pick up a commentary. They want to read a book. You know, they want to read uh, the next release by some author about something. And all those things have their place, but they do not supplant hearing from God directly because you have to be in his word. And so they were terrified of it. They didn't want to get into the word of God because the word of God has a standard. And that standard is holiness and righteousness and a life lived without sin, in a life where you are shedding things that you care about more than you care about God. 
Look at Judges 7, verse 22. And the 300 blew the trumpets, and the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow. Now, Judges 7, remember, it's all about Gideon. Here's a guy that God raised up to tear down the altars of Baal in Israel. He had to do it at night because he feared his father's house. And when you go through that study, it's all related. You can relate it to the church today and actually the altar of Baal always required child, child sacrifice. And what, what is the one most hotly contested thing in the earth today? It's abortion. And it's no different. It's Moloch worship, it's Baal worship, it's sacrificing children within the Holy of Holies and the church is silent about it. And you know what, I'm, I promise you if the church hadn't been silent about it since 1960s when it became law, um, it would have never made it. The church, if the church would stand up and take its rightful place as the, the government subsiding to the church, it's not the other way around. God's people are to set the standard and we should fill the halls of Senate, of the Senate and the Congress, uh, city council, school boards, but God's people in apathy and, and frankly, just not wanting to get involved, sit back and allow those things to happen and don't speak out. Remember the last time we voted, I was walking into a church to cast my vote. And as I was walking in, the Lord said, isn't it amazing how many millions of people in this country come into my house of worship with the word of God and vote to slaughter babies in the womb? And it just made me weep. Um, and he, he said something very specific. He said, blood, blood. He's, what he said was, they cry out, blood, blood, kill the babies and shed their blood. And he said, blood they require and request, blood they will receive. And you will reap what you sow eventually. And God's not gonna sit back and let that happen forever. Um, but in Judges 7, there's Gideon. He had to tear down the altar of Baal at night because he feared his father's house uh, much like a lot of the churches, right? They fear what's gonna happen if they speak out. But they set every man's sword against his fellow with the trumpet. Now the shofar, it was also used in sacred ceremonies. You can find that in Leviticus 25 with the Jubilee. Uh, that's a reference also to the end times, the rapture and the tribulation. Uh, the times of the restitution of all things, as God calls it. Psalms 47, 5, 81, 3, 153, etc. cetera. It's a battle cry and yet rejoicing for his people at the rapture. See, because in, from 1 Thessalonians 4, there's a trumpet that's going to shake the earth and it's a call home for his people, but it's a battle cry against the enemies of God. And it's a sound that will, that will just be deafening around the earth. And when he calls us home and you get your resurrected body in the twinkle of an eye, uh, faster than the speed of light going through your retina, you're going to be changed forever and live with him for all eternity. And uh, it's a battle cry. He's gonna then go to war. And before he does that, he calls his ambassadors home. And in verse 15 here in Zechariah 9, the Lord of hosts shall defend them and they shall devour and subdue with sling stones. That sounds like David. And they shall drink and make a noise as, though, as through wine and they shall be filled like bowls and as the corners of the altar. So the Lord will defend his people. He will go forth. He will fight for his people. He did back then, and he will yet again in the future. And you see that in Zechariah 14, verse 3. 
Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. Remember, that's at Armageddon, at the staging ground. Proverbs 21, 31, I like this verse. The horse is prepared against the day of battle, but safety is of the Lord. And it's not our responsibility to go out and to war against the evil rulers and to take back whatever. You know, Romans 12, remember, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord, and I will repay. Um, It's our place to hold the standard and be involved, but you don't take up arms against them unless you have a reason. Uh, Then you got to defend your ground. Then Chris will be the place of safe haven for all of us, you know, at some point. Uh, And the Lord their God shall save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they shall be as the stones of a crown lifted up as an ensign upon his land. Now in that day, the shepherd will deliver his flock. And you see this in Psalms 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Look at Psalms 100, verse 3. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us, and we, and not we ourselves. We are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. You know, Israel is referred to as jewels in God's crown in Malachi 3, verse 17. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. God will use them as an ensign to the nations in the millennium. Remember, all nations during that thousand-year reign will come to Jerusalem to worship Jesus, the ruler of the earth, once and for all. And you see that in Isaiah 11, verse 12. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations. Okay, the last verse here, verse 17. For how great is his goodness, how great is his beauty, Corn shall make the young men cheerful, and new wine the maids. I just love that. Great is his goodness. How great is his goodness. In Exodus 34, verses 5 and 6, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Notice the Lord passed by Moses and the Lord said, the Lord, the Lord God. He's speaking about the Trinity in that one verse to Moses. Gracious and long-suffering, goodness. Psalms 31 verse 19, oh, how great is thy goodness, which thou hast laid up for them that fear thee, which thou hast wrought for them that trust in thee before the sons of men. You know, if you trust in God, you do not have to fear the sons of men. The worst thing they think they can do to you is kill you. And really, when you gave your, your life to Christ, that was all the dying you will ever do. Um, when you die to self, you'll never die again. God promises that. We're to rejoice in his goodness. In 2 Chronicles 6.41, Thou therefore arise, O Lord God, into thy resting place. Thou in the ark of thy strength, let thy priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation and let thy saints do what? Rejoice in goodness. We should rejoice in God. Psalms 21, one through four, the king shall join the strength, thy strength, O Lord, and in thy salvation. How greatly shall he rejoice. Thou hast given him his heart's desire and has not withholden the request of his lips. Selah, that means amen in Hebrew. For thou preventest him with the blessings of goodness. Thou settest a crown of pure gold on his head. 
He asked for life of thee, and thou gavest it him, even length of days forever and ever. Psalms 145, verse 7, they shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness, and they shall sing of thy righteousness. You know, great is his goodness. You will look and live for eternity, seeing the king in goodness and beauty. In Isaiah 33, verse 17, thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty. They shall behold the land that is very far off. Psalms 23, verse 6, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Goodness and mercy shall follow you. You know, part of our forgiveness is due to his goodness. When I was studying this this week, this really, this really hit home for me. I was thinking about this. Psalms 27 or 25, verse 7, remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions, according to thy mercy, Remember thou me for thy goodness' sake, O Lord. That's part of his goodness, is his forgiveness. The earth will be full of his goodness. In Psalms 33, verse 5, he loveth righteousness. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. You know, that hasn't happened yet. I don't know if you look around in the earth today that you can say the earth is full of the goodness of God. Uh, but it's a promise that it will happen. And when there's a righteous king ruling in Jerusalem on the throne of David, as Gabriel promised Mary when she was pregnant with Jesus, remember he promised her, your son will sit on the throne of David. He will sit on that throne. He hasn't yet, but he will. He will sit on that throne in Jerusalem and the earth will be full of the goodness of the Lord. When a righteous king takes his place sitting on the throne of David and ruling the earth, the goodness of the Lord will go forth to the ends of the earth and back. And we will finally have a righteous king and ruler to follow on this earth. And you get a chance to ride back with him in Revelation 19. If, you're, if you are saved and in the church, you get to ride back with him. So let's crown the year with his goodness. I can't believe the year's almost up. You know, when we look at 2023, um, I cannot believe the year is almost up. But thou crownest the year with thy goodness, and thy paths drop fatness. When you're walking with the Lord on his path, he does provide a fatness, an overflow in your life in all areas. You will have people in your life that encourage you, that pour into you, that you get to live the abundant life. And the abundant life in God's eyes is very different than how the world thinks of an abundant life. Uh, it's a life full of contentment. It's a life full of joy. It's a life full of serving him. It's a life where you enter into his rest. And what that means from the book of Hebrews, remember when you enter into his rest, um, it means that you are actually walking and living out the call of God in your life. You're not trying to go against what God has for you. You're not like Jonah right? You're not running the other way and getting swallowed in a well. Uh, you're not the prodigal son who runs the other way and forsakes his inheritance, blows it, and uh, ends up living and eating with the pigs in, in that waller and just rolling around with them. And finally, he comes home. Remember, he never lost his sonship. Uh, he was a son. When he got home, the king put the signet ring on his finger and the robe around him, he killed the fatted calf and, and they had a party, they celebrated that he returned. 
Uh, but he never lost his sonship, but he never had his inheritance back either. He, remember he asked the dad, give me my inheritance now. I wanna go, I wanna go use it now. And Jesus is telling you in Revelation 3 to hold fast to what you have that no man takes thy crown. Because on the other side of this thing, there are crowns laid up for you. Uh, We're gonna throw them at the feet of Jesus in Revelation 4 and 5. And you don't wanna come to the party empty-handed. That could be embarrassing. You don't wanna come to the party empty-handed. You wanna come to the party with all these crowns going, Jesus, here you go. You know, I'm just gonna lay them right here because you deserve it all. But you cannot forsake your inheritance. And when we studied Hebrews, the, the whole book of Hebrews is, is written around these five warnings to the believer. The danger of drifting, and this is a progression. Danger of drifting, the danger of a hardened heart, the danger of failing to mature, the danger of willful sin, and then the danger of refusing. And when you study that pattern in Hebrews, because nowhere in Hebrews does it tell you how to get saved. It tells you how to live for God. The whole book is written to you as the believer. It's written on how to live for the king. You're not to drift because once you start to drift, you start to have a hardened heart. Then you fail to mature anymore. And when you fail to mature, you start to commit willful sin. You know better, but you're still doing that. And then you refuse God. And you refuse God because God sends people in your path. He sends friends along the way. He sends the word of God to you and you start to refuse because you just wanna run the other way. And God doesn't want that for you. He wants you to live an abundant life in freedom and not walking and living in bondage to slavery of sin. And that's what God wants. Um, But the only way to break free of that is to be in the word of God, which is one of the reasons for the last 50 plus years the enemy has worked really hard to get the word of God out of the churches. He doesn't want it there because he knows he can't take your salvation. He knows that. But what he can do is to cause you to be ineffective for the kingdom, to live a life of a carnal Christian, a life that is married to the world, a life that really doesn't... um, amount to a lot on the other side of this. And God has something radical for you, you and I. He has something powerful that he wants you to do. And it simply starts by getting into the word of God and letting the word shape you and refine you and burn everything off your life. And then you are, you are a refined object fit for the service of the kingdom. And when you do that, it's amazing what God will do in your life. You just have to give him the opportunity. And if you're here and you don't know the Lord, it is so simple. There is nothing you have to do to add to what Jesus did on the cross. He paid it all. It's not his death on the cross and your good works for salvation. If it were, you could lose it because you'd mess up. And God God doesn't want that. It's Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It is so simple. All you have to do is confess with your mouth. 
and by your tongue say, Jesus, you are Lord and you are saved. For all eternity, you are saved. The enemy cannot take you, take that away from you. But like I said, he can try to make you ineffective for the kingdom and to let your walk suffer. And we gotta stay in the word of God and make sure that doesn't happen. Okay, next week we're gonna open up, or actually next week is our um, third year anniversary service. So come, we're gonna have brunch, share some things, talk about what the Lord's doing in the world right now. It'll be a special time together. And if you need anything, our email address is at the very back of the notes. Just reach out. We love helping out people in the community. We love serving. If you know someone in need, reach out and we can help. I promise. Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. God, we thank you that it is by your word that we can live a life unashamed and approved to you. And God, we thank you. We thank you again, Lord, as we get into this Christmas season that the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us and that we beheld the glory, the glory of the only begotten son. God, we thank you that you have given us the guide to live by, your contract, your covenant. Lord, may we study it. May we search out the depth of it. God, Proverbs 25, 2 says, it's the glory of God to conceal a thing and the honor of kings to search out a matter. And so Lord, let us as kings search out your word and find all of the hidden treasure for us to build up our faith from Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Be with us in the week ahead and Lord bless our children and guard them as they go out into this world. Satan wants this generation, God, and we will not give it to him.